What's up, everybody? Today on the show, we have Daniel Bach. Dan is a great coach out of Austin, Texas, where he helps a number of athletes in a variety of different sports improve their sprinting ability, jumping ability, strength outputs, and their overall athletic performance. I've followed Dan for a number of years now, and I've gained a lot of insights by following his content on Instagram as well as his website. In this episode, we talk about vertical jumping, sprinting, strength training, all of it as it relates to running faster and being a better athlete. So if you have interest in jumping higher, sprinting faster, or just becoming a more athletic person in general, then this episode is a great one for you to listen into. As always, this episode is brought to you by SprintingWorkouts.com, where you can find a lot of information, articles, programs, and other services related to sprinting faster. So thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoy, and let's get to the episode. All right, so thanks, Dan, for coming on. I appreciate you taking some time out of your day. I know you're busy with training athletes and you know, putting in good work down at Acceleration. You're in Austin, Texas, right? Correct. Cool. How long have you been there? Uh, eight and a half years now. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, I was looking at some of the, uh, like the speed science videos you did a while back and the jump science university videos from seven or eight years ago. And it's it's funny to look back at that because that was some of the original content that I saw from you. And then sure, I found yeah. you on Instagram and I'm like, wow, this guy's pretty, you know, straight to the point. He doesn't m- mess around with much fluff. It's like, you know, grounded in science, but also not beholden to every single thing having to be completely verified by some study. But your right. your your foundation you come from seems to be based in research. I know you studied some of this stuff in school and have, have gone through a traditional route, but you also are willing to expand a little bit outside of that and try to be, you know, somewhat cutting edge with what you do. So how'd you get to this point? You know, where did you start from as an athlete maybe, and then get into coaching? How, how did that develop for you? Yeah. So my origin story story started with uh, jump training when I was 13, um, started dunking in the driveway, started uh, doing some squats and calf raises in my basement. Um, and just kind of got hooked on the training process with that. So, uh, had, had a lot of success in those early years as a teenager. And by the time I was 15, I, uh, like wanted to be a, a trainer, wanted to be a coach, uh, and, you know, help other people do what I had done as far as like the, the jump goals and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I had like a, you know, a pretty insignificant basketball career, but I was, uh, always, you know, a good jumper and continued to kind of train and experiment throughout, you know, my teenage years and into my early twenties. Um, I did, yeah, I started, you know, went to college and got an exercise science degree. And during that time is when I first started training other people. Mm-hmm. I think I was, yeah, it was probably when I was 20, like just a little bit before I turned 21 that I started training people. And, uh, initially it was, you know, just jumping stuff and that that's what I knew. Um, and then, you know, a few years later, I got a chance to work with some track athletes and uh, saw how, you know, some of the same things applied to speed and um, ended up getting more, more interested in track and field at that time, really, because the sport is, uh, you know, the sport is committed to athletic development. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's like you just have to get faster or like yeah. just jump farther, you know, like it's not, yeah. it's not uh, learning plays and defenses and, and learning a jump shot or, you know, all, you know, all the things that go along uh, with team sports. So, um, so yeah, I got interested in track and field there, um, got involved with the track team at my high school for a year after college. And then fortunately got the chance to come down to Austin and uh, start training people at acceleration, which is a, a place that is known for speed training. And, uh, and yeah, so, you know, football and track are two of the, the bigger sports that we have. So uh, really the, 
the coaching that I do in person is probably more focused on speed than jumping. Mm-hmm. Um, e- even when I have jumping athletes, like I have, you know, basketball, volleyball, but I still want to use sprinting uh, for them as a complimentary thing mm-hmm. uh, to develop explosive qualities and develop, you know, that, that bounce off the ground. Um, so yeah, I've really gotten, gotten a lot into the speed realm and yeah, throughout all that, I mean, I definitely come from a place of learning from experience first. Yeah. And then, you know, as I, I, as I went through school, I kind of learned, you know, why some of the things happened the way they did, like why they worked, uh, you know, getting some of that science background helped sort of fill in the understanding on that. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's also been times where research has, you know, shifted, or I don't know if it's ever like transformed my, my view on something, yeah. <laughs> but it's definitely like, you know, shifted my understanding or, you know, helped me understand something where I'm able to, you know, interpret something better. Um, so, yeah, but I also recognize, you know, with, with coaching and training experience, like the, the diversity of people and the, uh, the not black and white nature of things and, and just the complexity of the human body means that research has like severe limitations. Yeah. Right. I mean, for the, the big one being, well, you're looking at, uh, average results across a population is generally what it, what it looks at. And, you know, what that tells you is maybe like, what are, what are the odds of something being effective for a particular population? Um, but then even, you know, that the selection of that population is usually very generalized, right? Mm-hmm. You know, inactive males or <laughs> yeah. recreationally active males or just, you know, like male athletes with no other, you know, insights on who they are mm-hmm. and what their abilities are. So, yeah, I recognize there's a huge, huge limitation there of the ability to take, you know, generalized results across a population and apply it to the person who's in front of you. Um, and so, yeah, when we're coaching individuals, or even if you're coaching a team, but you have a team full of individuals that are have differences in them, um, you know, you can't, you can't just say, oh, well, the average in this population of 20 people was positive, therefore, that will work for all 20 people on my track team, right? You know, you, you have to at least try to have insights that go well beyond what research is telling you, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and some of those attempts may be wrong, but you have to try. You can't just be like, oh, you know what? This study showed that squats improved sprint speed. Therefore, we're all just going to do squats (laughs) or, or whatever it may be, or, you know, Nordic's Nordics reduced injury rates in the study. Therefore, we're all just going to do Nordics and assume it reduces injury rates. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to at least attempt to have insights that go well, well beyond that. Um, and, and yeah, when, when it comes to solving those individual puzzles. So yeah, it's a good balance. I would say, yeah, in spite of me being, you know, jump science, speed science, <laughs> I I still come from a place of my own thoughts and my own experience and other people's experience and sort of interpreting that first and then using research as sort of a uh like a corrective 
guideline, you know, mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, you know, so we have this theory and we've maybe made some observations that make us think this, but tested in research doesn't really, you know, doesn't really pan out. Okay. So maybe there's a different interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's not, it's not uh, research on a pedestal. This is how we learn. It's more like research is one way we have of testing ideas, but it's not, it's not, um, yeah, it's not the source of, you know, where we, where we start from, I would say, or at least not where I start from. Yeah. Yeah. We can, you know, as, as coaches, we have to use our coaching eye or there, there's an intuitive aspect to coaching. You can watch someone move and very clearly see, okay, something's wrong here. The typical intervention I would use is not going to work for this person. Maybe I need to regress it. Maybe they need to do goblet squats because if you throw a barbell on their back, they're going to, you know, fold like a pretzel or you see a right. kid running down the track and he might have a cue that you like to use or whatever it may be. If you're into that sort of thing, it's probably not going to work for this kid where it might work for that kid. So you have to, you have to be open to, you know, just using your own brain, you know, l looking at the person and mm -hmm. seeing what, what makes sense is what's going to help this person best. It's typically going to be different from other people that you're working with, whoever it is. And, and then you can stay grounded in certain realities and not get too far away from those realities by being well-versed in what the research is. It doesn't mean that you're, you know, stuck to whatever program they came up with in some longitudinal study that this is the program that works. It doesn't mean you have to do that, but it can, yeah. it, it can help inform you, keep you grounded and make sure you don't get so far down the intuitive path that you're not doing something that's just ridiculous and you know, <laughs> right. isn't going to produce right. any results. So, yeah. so being the jump science guy, I do have to ask real quick, what is your best vertical jump ever? So uh, around 43 inches uh, with, with an approach. That's good. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, you know, when I was, when I was jumping my highest, I was not testing on a Vertec. Yeah. So it's sort of an estimate based on, you know, what part of my arm I'm getting on a rim or, you know, mm -hmm. whatever, like that type of thing, or how hard, how high above the box on the backboard I could touch. It's kind of an estimate, but yeah, when, when I was jumping my highest, I was dunking, mm -hmm. you know, I, I wasn't testing on a vertex. So, um, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't really know specifically like what my best day could have been. Uh, but yeah, in, in the low forties for sure. Yeah. That's really solid. I never cracked 40. I think I hit on a vertex, I had 39 and a half in college, but okay. you know, I don't know if I was cheating the reach or, or what, but I, I did get up pretty high and I, I was happy right. about that. But, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I've heard a lot of people say, you know, when I play football or when I play soccer, I sprint a lot. I feel like I'm sprinting a lot faster than when I'm on the track being timed or something like that. And I think there is something to be said for if you're training, you're jumping, but the sole outcome that you're looking for is not specifically jump height you might jump higher because you're trying to dunk the ball you're not thinking about how do i get as high as possible and then tripping yourself out mentally over that you're mm -hmm. just in the zone trying to make it happen you can't overthink a dunk otherwise you're probably not going to make it if you overthink sprinting you're probably going to run slow so there, there's something to be said for having yeah you want to jump high but if you're training it in a way like by training it through dunking you may get a better result than if you were just simply measuring on a vertex or a contact mat or something like that. Yeah, I, I think there's something to be said for the environment, obviously. Um, but then also there's something to be said for having fun. Mm -hmm. And, 
yeah, I'm just like, you know, you're expressing yourself as an athlete, trying to do something cool, um, ideally, you know, with your friends or what, you know, like whatever. And yeah, I think that that should be the the base of your, you know, uh, explosive training really, um, mm-hmm. rather than, yeah, testing your vertical. Right. <laughs> for, for sure. Um, and, and, you know, trying to just jump up and touch something high can be fun as well, but it's, yeah, it's probably more fun when you're not testing. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and then maybe there's that day where you like, let's say you're trying to just touch the rim or something. And then there's that day where you suddenly get it with your palm and now, you know, you are jumping higher, but your goal is still just, Oh, I'm trying to touch that thing. Like, it's just fun. Uh, yeah, I think there's something to be said for that. Again, very hard thing to prove with research. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, that's that's based on, yeah, experience of myself and and a lot of other coaches uh, where, you know, that's, yeah, you want that to be the foundation rather than just testing your bird all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know with my high school team that when practice is more enjoyable, it doesn't mean that the rep they run isn't hard or that, you know, we're not, we're not putting in good work, but when there is a, some some levity in the session and people are smiling, they're excited to be there. We're always going to get better performances rather than if I'm super serious and, Oh, we got to hit these times or, you know, whatever some coach might say, you put that pressure on them and it just, I don't know, you you have to set them up for success and put them in an environment, like you said, where it allows them to express their, their skills naturally, as opposed to um, just bearing down on those performance outcomes all the time. It's, I remember uh, Randy Huntington was talking about training Sue and he was saying how, you know, look, I'm not, I don't, I don't really care what he runs in, in practice most of the year. I'm not trying to have him set a personal best every single time he comes out to the track. We might be working on a specific part of the race. We might be, you know, trying to load him up, whatever it may be, but it's not always about what time did you run today? That doesn't necessarily dictate what you're going to run at a competition. And especially when you're dealing with younger athletes, you know, most of them aren't, aren't going to go to college and play, or if they do go to college, they're probably not going to become a professional athlete. So we want to give them not only an opportunity to improve, but also to enjoy the time that they spend while doing it, because years down the road, that's what they're going to look back on. Oh, that was a lot of fun. And maybe then they'll want their kids to go in. Whereas if it's too serious and it's just dry and all about, oh, you didn't run fast enough or jump high enough they might be turned off and that might not set us up well to have good athletes coming out in the future. And on that topic of high school athletes, if you were looking at three groups of athletes, you have, you know, your high school athletes, you have some post-collegiate athletes, maybe like me, where I'm not the fastest guy out there, but I'm have a high, you know, I've trained for a long time, still trying to run faster. And then you also have a group of elite athletes who are at the top. So with sprinting itself, are there differences that you would, you know, immediately think of when training those different populations of people or would it purely be individualized based on what you see with with that individual athlete at those different levels so first of all i would say you know i wouldn't i wouldn't just immediately jump to some big difference between them where it's like oh yeah i know for sure that this is going to be different um i would say you know, with the professional where you're trying to eke out a small PR come season time, um, I would be less inclined to test a bunch in the, in the uh, you know, in the off season or in practices. 
Um, just because, you know, we're not, you're not expecting or even really trying to transform them athletically, mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah, I would still test somewhat regularly because you want to have an idea where their body's at. Yeah. Um, whereas with the high schoolers, and, and it's it's definitely a balance to, to strike with the things you were talking about, uh, you know, with the high schoolers where it's like, maybe they have college aspirations and you know, and they, that we're trying to get half a second faster in the hundred meters, <laughs> like mm -hmm. in, in a year, yeah. um, you kind of have to know as you go, like, are things changing, you know, are, like, are we, are we headed in the right direction in the sense that are we going to open the season with a PR and then get faster from there? Uh, cause if you don't, I mean, it, getting that big chunk of improvement you're looking for, gets pretty tough. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, I would say actually testing more often with the young kids, mm -hmm. but yeah, it is a tough balance because you just, okay, you know, fly time test, fly time test, fly time test is going to wear you down mentally. And it's not, it's not that much fun, uh, except, you know, the days where you do get a record or whatever it's yeah. fun. <laughs> um, so yeah, especially I do one-on-one -on -one training, so I don't have the team environment generally and and so, yeah, you know, like, let's say, you know, running five sixties with even like a group of three might be kind of fun mm -hmm. for people, especially if they're competing um, for, you know, maybe for one of the reps or two of the reps, like that's going to be more fun than you and a coach one-on-one -on -one and you're doing five sixties yeah. and you, and you gotta, and you gotta wait five minutes in between. <laughs> I mean, that's just boring. Yeah. Story of my life. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and that's why it's, it's actually a good testament to what you've done, like being able to still be as fast as you are training by yourself. Thanks. Man. <laughs> um, and I, I think about that with, uh, with Kyle too, not a jumper. Yeah. I know you guys are familiar through, uh, with each other. So yeah, I think, you know, training alone or training one-on-one -on -one with the coach is tough. Um, but yeah, I do want to test more often. I, like I, with the, the young kids, it's like, you know, I want them in, October, November, December to hit like a fly time record, mm -hmm. you know, where it's okay. I think today you could run a PB in the hundred meters if you got on the track, you know, and it's, and it's November or it's December. Um, because again, we're, you know, hoping to make those big changes in, in speed over time. Uh, so that, that's one difference. Um, another one that comes to mind would just be the, uh, the challenges of staying healthy. I, I got to think are, are harder with one, just older athletes, but two faster athletes, you know, like the faster you are, the more dangerous sprinting is, yeah. uh, the, or the, you know, the more athletic you are, the more dangerous being an athlete is because it's, everything's more forceful, more violent, you know? So, um, definitely more inclined to sprint fast a couple times a week with, a young, let's say, okay, like, uh, a, you know, a young high school sophomore who runs a, a 12, nine and a hundred. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not really concerned at all about like pulling a hamstring. Like, oh, I mean, depending on the athlete, but yeah, like I, I have, I have a couple athletes that, you know, like good robustness, good durability, like good training history. Like I don't have any concerns really about them pulling a hamstring sprinting. Um, whereas if I have a, 28 year old who runs a 10 2 
Uh, yeah. Which, by the way, I have not trained anybody like that yet. So, but um, emphasis you know, on yet. It'll come. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, but so definitely more concern in that situation, right? Mm -hmm. About okay, well maybe I'm not gonna we're not gonna sprint full speed twice per week all year long, or you know. So, um, yeah, those are a couple different things. But yeah, I think probably the bigger theme is like what you said, where it's really going to be an individual thing mm -hmm. where I'm looking at those, you know, the traits that they have, I'm looking at their athletic background, uh, you know, and, and the, the history of how different training has affected them and, and all these things. And, and then coming to a solution for the individual rather than just, then uh, just categorizing them into, you know, developmental intermediate, like elite, like, and then just having a program for those, it's definitely going to be more, uh, more individualized, I would say. Yeah, for sure. Because within each of those groups, you could have athletes with completely different training histories, completely different, you know, movement abilities. Just because someone's fast doesn't mean that they are a well-rounded athlete. They may be very good right. at that one thing, but they be may be missing something that is either holding them back, making them more prone to injury, or something like that. So if you're a coach out there and you happen to take on a, a really high-level athlete, yeah, you may be able to jump to very specific things and, you know, different forms of lifting, or they might need a more general approach at times simply because they have gaps in their development. And, and like you said, you know, as long as an athlete say on the, on the younger side, as long as they have been progressed up to a certain point, you know, that, okay, this person can sprint. It's not day one at practice. They're probably going to be able to handle in reasonable volumes higher intensities of training because their their version of high intensity is not the same as like you said someone who's running 10-2 if you're driving a honda civic it's not going to blow up the same way as something that's you know supercharged with nitrous and all this stuff the 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 risk involved is very different between the honda civic and the f1 car yep um sure. so one thing with sprinting is our time constraints with producing force are, are very short. You know, it's very brief. You have great videos on ground contact times and talking about that. And, um, you know, so if we're limited to 80 milliseconds, 100 milliseconds, or we're long jumping and you may have 120 milliseconds on the board, how are you thinking about developing strength for those athletes? Let, let's assume that they have a, a good general base. They've done, you know, they know how to squat, hinge, lunge, Maybe they've done barbell back squats, deadlifts, like they've done some training. They, mm -hmm. They're not a completely fresh athlete. When you look at strength training for sprinters, how, how are you approaching that? Is it just simply if we get stronger and they sprint, they'll be able to take that strength they've developed and apply it in short time frames? Or are you modifying anything within your strength and conditioning or your plyometric work? to try and shift things toward producing force in those very short time constraints that we're limited to when we sprint. Yeah. So big topic. Um, I would say one, yeah, you have to recognize like the specificity of sprinting and how, how short the time frames are. And so then you don't, you definitely don't assume anything regarding transfer. Um, I think you can hope for general strength to transfer. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, the big thing is going to be test and find out as you go. Yeah. You know, 
So yeah, I, what you want, I would say, what the scenario you want is, okay, we're sprinting. We are doing plows that also train us to get off the ground relatively fast. And if we have that piece in place, and then we do a reasonable amount of general strength training. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, squats, split squats, deadlifts, you know, like general strength, yep. not specific strength. We hope that, okay, we get stronger over time, but because we're still doing all these other things that are fast off the ground, then we'll just get faster as we get stronger. Okay. That's what you want. It's simple. You just steady progress over time. You know, it's the the concurrent training model, right? Or the, like the conjugate method uh, applied to sprinting, where just getting better across the board at everything. You can hope for it. You can want that. It probably isn't going to play out that way, mm -hmm. like long term. You know, uh, we have these cases. Uh, I know, like you know, the West Side uh, disciples. They love to boast about oh, such and such athlete. You know, good fast football player came and. He did six week box squat program and took three tenths off his 40. Okay. So we had what, 10, 15 years of being a football player and sprinting. And then, yeah, so you added some strength training to that and it was, and it was good over the short term. You know, how did the next six weeks go? How did the next six months go? Did he continue to get faster? Um, and so, yeah, I think the, the reality is at some point you're probably going to get that disconnect between general strength and speed. And, and that's true, I would say, for, you know, like pretty much for anybody. Um, in particular, if you have someone who has a history of like lifting a lot and maybe not sprinting as much, then, mm -hmm. you know, I'll have, I'll get football guys that as, say, a high school junior, they got beyond a double bodyweight squat and they, but they, you know, they can't break five in a 40. Yeah. They may not break, they may not break five, two in a 40 even. Um, and so in that case, it's sort of a, more of an extreme example where like you actually are way more developed in the strength department than the speed department. And you should probably get away from general strength training, you know, maybe for the foreseeable future, <laughs> if, mm -hmm. if speed is really your goal, um, then yeah, I think you you hope for it to be maybe more of a short-term disconnect where, okay, now, you know, we have, let's say, a sprinter who is primarily speed trained, and let's say they strength train consistently for, you know, let's say a three-month period in the off-season, and during that time, they get stronger, they, maybe their broad jump, you know, gets way better, their standing brick gets better, maybe even their acceleration gets better, uh, but maybe their top speed sort of comes down a little bit. So they're like generally a better athlete, but not specifically in max velocity. Mm -hmm. So then you would say, okay, well, we just need to like kind of, you know, shift a little bit back so that we get, get good at that, that fast, fast thing. And so for them, maybe it's more of, uh, we're going to take a one month break from general strength training. And then we're going to shift back and we're going to see that, that top speed come back and, uh, and we're going to be in a really good spot going into the track season. You know, something, something like that, a different sort of a different scenario. You know, you hope for more of that short-term disconnect and then you just like sort of a quick, quick fix. Um, and then, so yeah, like that, that shifting back to speed, 
that's where I think you can you can get those those modifications of the strength training where uh yeah you're you're gonna maybe use something to check and like or to like track your strength ability mm -hmm. without being uh disruptive okay so what i like you know people use the terms like specific and non-specific and or yeah specific in general um i i tend to view it more as you know this like the specific strength training i don't view it as like this is going to make us faster mm -hmm. rather it's like how much is it going to mess with specificity right and so then i so then i i call things like more disruptive or less disruptive mm -hmm. okay so an example of you know more disruptive strength training would be deep squats mm -hmm. or deep split squats um maybe even deep hinges which is a tough topic that uh yeah. i don't necessarily have a great answer for but you know <laughs> uh, uh, an rdl is not specific to sprinting at all right it is really good for your general hamstring development but is very much not specific to sprinting so that's even one that you know we talk about um whereas less disruptive would be hex bar deadlift mm -hmm. uh, because one is less range of motion to it's uh you know ge generally it's going to be like concentric focused so it's not going to have the same structural adaptations uh, of you know like a down and up squat or a down and up split squat um a box squat would be less disruptive than a deep squat yep. same concept as the hex bar deadlift less range of motion and then it's concentric focused um or then like the more you know shifting even further in the less disruptive direction would be your power clean uh, you know, it's similar to the deadlift concept, but it's faster now too. Yeah. Um, or, you know, snatches, obviously, um, weighted jumps, uh, or, or you know, even like rhythmic up and down weighted jumps. Um, if you're not getting like real deep in, in a squat position, you know, those are examples of training strength, but in a less disruptive manner. Okay. So yeah, the way you would use that type of strategy would be Let's let's say we're talking about that sprinter who lifted in the offseason again, and now we're trying to shift back explosive, right? Um, to get that top speed to show up. But we don't want to lose the broad jump gains that we got. We don't want to lose the vertical jump gains we got. So we're gonna use uh, you know, a power clean once per week, and we're gonna use, you know, some type of weighted jump once per week, and we're gonna track performance in those. And as long as we're able to perform well on those, then we know we're not losing strength. Or at least we're not losing strength that shows up in explosive movements. You know, you may not, yeah. if, you, if you don't lift, if you don't squat for a month, you're probably not going to turn around and hit the same max squat. Yeah. <laughs> but, but in terms of things that are going to like really plug into your, your sprinting, um, yeah, if you can maintain the, the power clean, maintain the jump squat, that type of thing, um, that's a, a good indicator to you that you're not losing the adaptations you gain from your lifting. Mm -hmm. And then if, you know, if those things are performing well, you don't have to be in a rush to get back to, to general strength training. And I think, you know, people, you'd often be surprised by what can happen on those like sort of explosive strength training performances when you stop 
general strength or like stop maximum strength training. Mm -hmm. Um, especially if you've been training strength pretty hard, if you stop it for a few weeks, you very well may see your power clean shoot up. Yeah. Or, or, you know, or your, your standing vert, like a few weeks later, like, you know, it's higher. Um, because one, you're just, you're not training slow anymore, but two, uh, you're just getting fresh because mm-hmm. you've removed sort of a fatiguing stimulus with the heavy lifting. And so, you, you know, your nervous system or, or, you know, whatever other components go into like fatigue and freshness, right. um, you're, you're getting more fresh. And so then that explosive performance can actually increase. And yeah, a lot of people are surprised by that. Like, whoa, I stopped squatting and my, you know, my vert is like, wait, <laughs> like three inches higher now. It's like, yeah, I mean, you go through that. Like that happens. That's very, um, like a, a pretty common phenomenon. Um, so yeah, that super long winded answer to that question, but oh, no are, worries. It's all good. Yeah. Those are some of the strategies I'm, I'm thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've noticed in my own training that when I get away from longer time under tension movements, whether that's the reason or I just, that's just like the easiest thing for me to like look at and be like, okay, that was, I spent a lot of time in that movement. I noticed those are more fatiguing for me as far as my sprint performances. So Mm -hmm. they're typically going to be better for developing strength or developing hypertrophy. Maybe, you know, you got to build your glutes up or your quads or whatever it is. Those exercises are, are great for that core level development. But then if I'm trying to sprint really fast, if I'm doing a lot of that long time under tension work, that's where I start to see it be, like you said, disruptive to my sprinting. So I think that's a really great way to look at it is, you know, specific general, eh, I, I don't necessarily think those terms are great either because everything we do outside of our sport is going to be more general than it is specific because it's not the thing that we're training to improve. Right. But how disruptive is it? And at what point in the year are you willing to be disruptive to the main quality? Because you can't simply just train all out sprinting the whole year round and expect to have a linear progression of improvement. You know, eventually you might right. become desensitized to that stimulus and your body's just like, eh, I don't, I don't want to adapt to this anymore. But the same goes for those more general or more disruptive forms of lifting as well, where at a certain point, you know, your progress there may start to stagnate and you're trying to get into a period where you're running fast. Okay. Let's shift to less disruptive lifts or jumps or whatever it may be. And then all of a sudden, now that fatigue goes out of the system. Now you can express that strength that you built, but express it at a higher velocity and have the result that you're looking for of sprinting faster, jumping higher or whatever it may be. Yeah. And I think this is most, it's most true. And we have to like, you know, find solutions for this the most when it comes to max velocity sprinting. Yeah. Because it's like the furthest thing from general strength. Yeah. And it's so sensitive. Yeah. And it's super sensitive and you have to be, you have to be fresh and you have to, yeah, like let your body really tune into that movement to, to do your best performance. And so there's this narrative that um, like the interference effect essentially doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And and you know the the anecdotes that that uh, allegedly support that narrative are oftentimes based on like broad jump mm-hmm. or even you know like a 20 meter sprint time or something be like oh yeah you know i've been training strength training strength training strength and oh look here's a broad jump record 
and or here's a you know 20 meter sprint record and so look you know strength training does not interfere with speed does not interfere with athleticism <laughs> it's like i don't think the people who are uh you know putting that that theory out are testing fly times regularly yeah or or even 100 meter times um yeah i think you know maybe in some cases they have some experience with track athletes and it's like yeah okay so they got stronger in the off season and they ended up sprinting faster in track season okay yes we know that like we know that yeah. that that uh, scenario exists mm -hmm. um but that doesn't mean it exists permanently for that athlete it definitely doesn't mean it exists for all athletes and so yeah i think there's this you know yeah if you're if you're looking at broad jump or even standing vert um very different uh very different results in terms of having to manage strength and speed than if you're looking at fly times you mm. know yeah track and field times long jump time or long jump distances things like that uh yeah it's a whole different world when it's like you said a tenth of a second off the ground versus you know a broad jump you might have like a half second yeah <laughs> uh like load up and, and and big push out you know it's just a completely different thing so uh yeah, I mean, the, the interference is real for sure. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, especially if you're comparing to, you know, a time when a sprinter was fresh and, you know, tuned into sprinting, um, it's going to be very hard to, to replicate that or, or to beat those old times in a period when he's been squatting for four months straight, yeah, you know, exactly. Um, Especially so, if you're fast, yeah. you know, it's one thing if your fly 10 time is 130. Right, right. Okay. That, it's another you thing. Know, but if you're running 0.85, yeah, that's going to be very easy to disrupt that because of the amount of, you know, neural drive and freshness and just that you have to be so twitchy and ready to go to run that fast. Mm -hmm. I've never run that fast. I would like to, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, one way and, and it's like, so you also have to, once again, look at who are you working with, you know, and, and how, how prone are they going to be to being disrupted by it? And also it goes back to how strong are you? You know, if you can only squat 95 pounds, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's going to be as disruptive as if you can squat 500 pounds and you're trying to push strength, you know, just right. the, the pure stress involved systemically with that is different. And I think in talking to a lot of people who are training and, you know, want to get faster, who have sort of a powerlifting background or a really strength dominant background, which I can relate to. Um, I spent a lot of years just trying to be as strong and strong as I could. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it can be a little scary to move away from that thing that is your comfort zone, which maybe your thing is you can squat heavy and it makes you feel good and it's fun. And people look at you at the gym like, wow, that guy's really strong or whatever. But you have to be willing to sacrifice that thing that you're good at. If you really do want to run fast, you have to be willing to move away from that thing that is your comfort zone, which may be very heavy lifting, and trust that your body will be able to use those qualities better when you're fresh. And that can be a hard concept to get across to people because it's very easy to look at the bar and say, oh, I got five plates on there. I'm, I'm ready to go. Uh -huh. Then when you get away from that, there's a little mystery involved, you know? And, and so if, if you're someone out there who is in this situation, 
you know, be willing to shift to those things that Dan mentioned of doing the jump squats or doing the power cleans and, and focusing on just accelerating that load very rapidly and, and let just see what happens. You'll, you'll probably surprise yourself, you know, probably jump higher, run faster and, and feel better when you're out at the track. Yep. And, and this is the, this is the concept behind, uh, you know, some of the jump training programs that I've, mm -hmm. that I've put out over the years where I, you know, you have different program options and it's, you're, you're addressing where the athlete is at with respect to strength and jumping ability. Mm -hmm. And yeah, if you have someone who is disproportionately developed in strength, then just continuing to get stronger, you know, very low chance it's going to be effective. Yeah. Um, where, whereas if, yeah, if you have somebody with, you know, great jumping background, let's say they started dunking or, you know, dunking on a low rim when they were a kid and they've been doing it for five plus years and also just like playing sports and just being an athlete and maybe have a little bit of genetic talent. When that athlete adds strength training, they're going to take off athletically. Yep. Right. Like, so, you know, the context makes a big difference. Um, and so, yeah, you have those, you know, you have the anecdote of this person started strength training and in two months they added six, six inches to their vert and their 40 came down like three tenths. And, and it's like, it's all great. Uh, but the opposite scenario also exists, you know, of, oh, this athlete, maybe less explosive talent, maybe not as much of a like sprinting, jumping background, you know, and maybe they just sort of, maybe they played a sport like maybe it was a football where, but maybe they were a, a linebacker or something and they didn't train speed as much. And then they just like got into lifting. And then over the course of, let's say a year or two of lifting, you know, they got a bunch stronger and, but they're slower than they used to be now. Mm-hmm. You know, like both of those things exist. And you, yeah, you got to be willing to, again, just like take, you know, test your speed. Yeah. Test your vert, like find out what mm -hmm. is happening and then make adjustments accordingly. Um, yeah, I just, I just hate when people are like, oh, no, just do this and it will yeah. work. You know, <laughs> yeah. like I just actually, I, oh, goodness, just recently had somebody come on to one of my Instagram posts, which was not even about this topic. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> and, and, and he came on there just like, this doesn't matter. Just train absolute strength. I promise if you do 12 weeks of box squat training, your vert will go up. <laughs> just like, Dude. first of all, I didn't say anything about like not doing absolute strength training. Like that was right. not, and you know, I wouldn't say that. Like I'm a huge, yeah, you're a huge proponent of it, of, of absolute strength training. Um, and, and, but yeah, so, even, but even, even though I am a huge proponent, I would not make a guarantee to somebody about 12 weeks of box squat training and improving, improving their vertical. <laughs> yeah. Um, in some cases I would say, yeah, you could probably expect it, but I can't promise it. And then in other cases I'd be like, no, this is the wrong thing for you. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I think you just have to be willing to assess and, and, and then come up with solutions accordingly. And then even once you come up with your solution, test as you go and find yeah. out if it's working, you know? And I think, yeah, a lot of people just don't, they don't do that. They don't confront themselves with the results. Right. They just sort of want to believe in something and they'll do it for a while. And then, yeah, maybe somewhere down the road, they'll realize like, man, this has yeah. not been working. <laughs> yeah, it ain't uh, working out. And there's so, no excuse to yeah. not test now because 
you know, you can get the My Jump app and you can look at vertical jump, broad jump, RSI. You can, if you have a Windows computer, you can get Kenovia for free, film okay. from the side over a 10 meter fly. You can you can test for virtual virtually zero dollars. So yeah, it's a lot. A lot no, of there's options. no reason not to. Yeah, and that can yeah. give you, you know, as someone who's self coached, I don't have a coach telling me what to do, which is it can be tough because I find it's a lot easier to assess someone else's program or look at someone else's technique and figure out what they need to work on. Whereas with myself, you look at your your own videos a thousand times and it just sort of becomes a a blur, you know, it, you you don't always see the little details. And so by tracking what I'm doing, if I'm tracking it in the gym, I'm tracking what I'm doing on the track, that can at least give me some objective data to show me, am I moving in the right direction? Where might some gaps be that my biases with how I think about training? I, I wouldn't, if I was just thinking about it, I wouldn't see those little gaps. But when you are able to test different types of variables, that can at least keep you grounded in what is really going on, you know, so you don't fool yourself and think, oh, yeah, I'm getting faster because I, I feel great. Well, awesome. But are you? Yeah. And, and you can do it <laughs> yep. for zero dollars. So there's no reason not to. Yeah, I'm reminded of uh, uh, a guy that I it was one of the first track athletes that I worked with. And uh, this was in Wisconsin. I, I worked with him in person. I was, just, you know, when, went to the, we went to the same school and um he had some really good results in like his first year of training with me then i moved to texas and i was like doing his workouts remotely and i i remember him telling me like oh i feel really powerful and i was like okay <laughs> but like are you fast yeah yeah <laughs> um and then and you know it ended up i, I don't remember like this is seven or eight years ago now at this point but um you know i, I don't remember the exact thing but whenever he like got into a race, it was like, oh yeah, well, you I mean, you're fine, but you're mm -hmm. not like a, a special fast right now. Right. So, you know, there's still something we got to go through here to like translate over. And so, yeah, with him, the, the, the regular approach or like kind of the approach we ended up using was like uh, more or less not lifting in for, you know, maybe six weeks in indoor season. And then again, in outdoor, like, uh, you know, a good chunk. And he had a lot of success. Uh, he did heptathlon in the, in the indoor season and then 400 hurdles Ooh. in outdoor. Damn. And uh, <laughs> yeah, he was sort of a, like a, you know, D3 track Swiss army knife. Um, yeah. But uh, he had a lot of success with that, you know, as far as uh, I think, yeah, the first year I trained him, he, he, PR'd in his first 400 hurdles race. And then he didn't lift for seven weeks and he ran two and a half seconds faster in his last race than his first race. Whoa. Um, so in the, in the, yeah, over the course of the year, he ended up getting a more than a three second PR and he got into D3 nationals with it. So it was like, mm -hmm. you know, re really it was, it was good because it actually shows both sides of the equation we've been talking about. He like he wasn't very strong when I met him, and so we started strength training, and it did a lot for him, like you know, short term. Uh, but then when it got to season, we you know we also took the strength training away, and then he got even better. Right. So you know, again, it, like you, I could have just said, "Oh, look, strength training works because he got a PR." Okay, but he there's still potential for him to do much more if we if we allow him to shift to you know specificity here.
Yep. Um, so yeah, it kind of demonstrated the benefits of strength training, but also how getting away from it can work. So, um, yeah, just, a, a, an example that came to mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it goes back to when are you doing something? You know, if you just look at an exercise or, uh, a certain style of training in and of itself, you can say, yes, this works or works to do something, but when are you applying that stimulus? And how, how does that fit into your overall progression throughout the year? That's really where a lot of this stuff can be effective. And that's why in my videos, like, you know, sometimes people are a little frustrated because they want me to tell them the, the workout that's going to make them faster or the exercise. And it's like, it's not about that. It's about how do you sequence everything over time to get you yeah. in the right, you know, you have to develop your preparedness, like the strength training, get prepared. But then we also have to get into a state of readiness and what gets you prepared versus what gets you ready to perform might be two different things. And going back to what you said about, um, you know, for example, getting stronger and seeing oh, our 20 improved and our broad jump improved, but maybe that's not going to be reflected in max velocity. When you think about training someone, say you have an athlete, one athlete who they're good at top end, but their acceleration is lacking another athlete where they accelerate really well, but the top end is lacking. Are you training those athletes in general? Obviously, there's always going to be, you got to look at the athlete first, but big picture, are there differences in how you're training the athlete who needs to develop acceleration more versus the athlete who needs to really just hone their top speed? Are there any major differences there that you see? Yeah, so I think, uh, first of all, I'd rather have an athlete that has the top speed yeah. You know, if we are talking about a, a sprinting, uh, like a track situation, um, that athlete, uh, I'm going to feel good about getting stronger and, and, you know, training jumps and stuff like that. And that having a good translation to their, to their acceleration. And then, and then also, you know, because they are apparently already like elastically adapted, um, not going to have a lot of concern about like ruining that or you know disrupting that with the strength training like it's probably going to be minor disruption right mm -hmm. um whereas the athlete that's a better accelerator it's probably already better in the strength and power department right you know probably going to have good jumps and stuff already so then it's like well we need to more specifically like you need to sprint and run a lot mm -hmm. and so yeah i would i would be gravitating more towards like a, a really complete running program for that athlete and trying to specifically develop that, that lightness on their feet, that quickness off the ground that they need for top speed or, you know, the elasticity is the term I use a lot. Um, and then, yeah, that the strength training side for them may be more like, well, okay, let's do some hex bar deadlift um, rather than some deep squats, maybe, you know, and, and of course it would be based on testing too. Like if, yeah, of if course. the athlete was, somehow a really great accelerator, but didn't have good strength to body weight ratio, then I would still be like, okay, well, let's raise that up, you know? Yeah. Um, but like, they probably do have a good strength to body weight ratio. They probably already have like good jumps. And mm -hmm. so then, yeah, in terms of their, you know, the whole year, uh, you know, training that strength would probably be a smaller section of the year. Right. And then I'd probably, you know, I want them doing more running in off season. Uh, or, you know, more running total throughout the year uh, because, yeah, they're trying to specifically build up that that piece. Uh, now, that's all 
you know, like an initial assessment. And then as you go, you find out, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's my, that's my big thing is I, I still have people who will ask me like, Hey, like, what should my yearly plan look like? <laughs> and I'm like, I mean, I, I could, I could tell you something, but you shouldn't like just plan on sticking to it. Yep. <laughs> you know, like you, you should be figuring it out as you go. Um, you know, you have the ability to do that. It's not like you have to plan eight months of training right now. So, right. Um, so yeah, just big on testing, thinking about things, you know, using some critical thinking, understanding what's happening to your body and then, and then come up with a solution as you go. Yep. On, on the topic of elasticity, is there anything that you tend to go back to that is kind of a staple in your training for, for developing elasticity, whether that could be little hopping exercises, more intense plyometrics, uh, tempo running, anything that you find that has worked fairly well for you with improving elasticity? Because I know some people are of the opinion that it's more just inherent to the athlete, but I, th I think it can certainly be developed. You know, obviously, you may not get to the level of elasticity of a you know elite triple jumper or whatever, but right, it, it's certain. I believe it. it. I've seen it myself. I've gone from sometimes I was at an RSI of you know two point six, and then there's other times where I've been at four point oh. Yeah, I'm probably more elastic when I'm at four point oh than two point six. So something can change. So what, yeah. what do you do in that regard when you're looking at someone and you say, okay, this person might be strong or explosive, but the elasticity is lacking. What are you looking at there as far as training inputs that you can use to improve that? Yeah, I think uh, running volume is a big one. So, yeah, you know, I think kind of the, the, the sports performance world outside of track wants the solution to be yeah, intensive plyometrics yeah. and, and fly times. Um, you know, those are the sexy solutions and those are the, mm. um, you know, it's like the explosion principle, right? Like, oh, yeah. we do, everything we do is just like explosive as, you know, as fast as we can do. And that's how you train to get fast. Um, and, and, you know, that doesn't have, it's not, it's not completely illegitimate. Like we do want to train fast and we do want to, you know, be able to do like higher intensity plyometrics, but I really think you need to have a, a base of lower intensity. Um, then you can get the training volume in with, with right. what you're trying to develop. And, and I think, uh, yeah, what, one, even from a, from a safety standpoint, like you want to use the lower intensity to build up, tissues like more gradually and more more gently rather than just like you know hurdle hops and fly times uh just jump right to the most intense things we can do uh you know especially for an athlete who maybe doesn't have the like the elastic training background you know so you take a even like myself you know a lot of two foot jumping and squatting background uh, and, and so coming from years of that, and then you just throw fly times and hurdle hops at me, like my shins are going to be at risk, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I think that like that base of lower intensity is, is really helpful. And, and honestly, probably, I don't know if I can say more important, but like, 
getting volume where you're bouncing off the ground thousands of times over the course of, you know, a week or, or, you know, a month, years, mm -hmm. um, it gives you that lightness on your feet, probably better than, you know, sprinting 50 meters for four reps and then hopping yeah. over like, you know, five hurdles, like five, five sets, you know? Um, and, and I, so I, again, I think you, you want to look at history. If I have a track athlete that's been running for a decade and, and, you know, some section of the year has had high volume in it for a long time, then they, you know, they probably have that in place. And, uh, and so maybe they have less of a need to do that all year long now. Whereas someone like myself that wants to go from being a, you know, a good jumper, but like a relatively heavy, slow jumper. Mm -hmm. And then I want to get better at, you know, trying to dunk from distance off one foot, or I want to get better at bounding far, or I want to improve my fly time. Like I need to build up a history of running. Mm -hmm. that, I, that I didn't get as a, as a youth, you know? Yep. Um, and so then that becomes really important for me. So, and I, I do think the, uh, you know, the extensive plyometrics, the lower intensity plyometrics have, have a role there as well. Um, but even those one are, you know, not as specific if I am trying to get faster mm -hmm. and two, like you, you have to watch your volume on those a bit too. Yeah. Um, whereas running is going to allow me, you know, I could, if I, if I do like, let's say a fast jog, I could easily do a thousand meters a day of that and not be like testing the limits of my lower legs, you know, or like right. wearing myself down. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, I, you know, I could do, let's say, a 18 to 20 second, hundred, hundred meter pace, mm -hmm. you know, and, and and yeah, so that that by itself, is that training my speed? No, because I'm not, you know, I'm not getting the nervous system to fire. I'm not, it's not like, uh, you know, I'm not developing the coordination. I'm not developing the some of the muscular things that I need for sprinting, you know, like the, the stimulus on your hip flexors, your hamstrings, you know, that, that type of thing. So there's obviously a lot missing from that as a speed training stimulus, but it is going to, let's say if it was a thousand meters per day, I mean, that's 500 bounces off the ground per day. Yeah. You know, every foot or every stride is a bounce off the ground. It's a low mm -hmm. intensity plyometric and that having that background, um, plays a big role. And so, yeah, I mean, I've had the experience of during quarantine, I was on a track or on a trail five days per week. And then and, uh, and, and so then I was doing, you know, fast days, like, you know, fast short sprints. I was doing fast, like 150 days. And then I was doing a lot of, yeah, easy hundred meters or easy 30 second runs, mm -hmm. you know, things of that on, on sort of the, the down days to, uh, to build up that, that volume. And, uh, you know, my 150 got a lot faster during quarantine, yes. you know, <laughs> and over the course of like six to eight weeks. And, uh, and then also, um, you know, I mean, I, I turned 35 next month, uh, last week, my, I don't, uh, personal best one leg RSI, you know? And, and so mm -hmm. this, and that was on my right leg, which is actually my less capable leg. Nice. Um, I got, I got jumpers knee on my left right now, so I'm not doing it on my left. Yeah. And, uh, 
And but so yeah, I beat my my best left leg score with my right leg. Damn, nice. And and so and that's you know even at my age, like this type of ability is able to develop and change. Yeah. Um, and I'm also like I'm not especially strong right now. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not it's not just like oh you know my my balance is up because my squats up or something. Um, right. You know, because again I'm working through jumpers knees, so like my strength mm-hmm. is like yeah. not yeah. not at its best. So, so yeah, the, uh, the idea that this stuff is like just sort of, you know, genetic and you can't develop it is complete trash. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, much of, much of the athletic development field doesn't know how to develop it. Um, and, and maybe historically they've, you know, you do it like a, a six week squat program. You can see changes during that time mm-hmm. and maybe, you know, and that makes people believe in that. And maybe, you know, doing plyos twice per week for six weeks didn't necessarily like create measurable change. It's like, oh, we just can't change it. Mm-hmm. Well, no, you just weren't, you just weren't doing the right thing for the right, like for long enough. Yeah. Um, and, and for the skeptics of this, you know, you, you got to look at people who are light on their feet and what they have done to get there. Yeah. Um, and you know, if you look at, I mean, obviously people know sprinters are like really bouncy, right? Mm-hmm. But even look at 800 runners, look at mile yeah. runners, look at cross country people. A lot of them will have a, a higher RSI than, than a football player. Yeah. Um, even, even like a skill position football player who is like a good athlete and who's fast, like fast accelerator and stuff. They're not necessarily necessarily like really light on their feet and bouncy off the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, if, if I have a, a you know somebody who trains for the five k, and then and they could walk in and no jumping background or, or or like even like plyometric background or strength training background, and they can hit a you know a three point zero RSI, and I got a football player who you know sprints and squats and does does jumps of different types and, and, and is like a good overall athlete and they're hitting the 2.6 rsi what does that tell you about the development of elastic capabilities yep you know it is not all about intensity and it's not all about um yeah it's definitely not all about like strength and power mm-hmm. so i mean look at yeah. kipchoge when you watch those guys run his training group they, lit- they literally just bounce across the ground the whole way and they run right. miles and miles and miles and miles. You know, this is a marathon, but it's, it's so effortless. And how have they developed that? By doing a lot of, you know, obviously they're running fast because they're super elite athletes, but in the scheme of the fastest types of runs versus not, they're not running very fast compared to an elite sprinter, but right. they're getting so many contacts in that to get through that, you have to be elastic to do. If I'm going to go do 10 by 150 at 60% pretty slow. If I just, if I try to muscle my way through that, it's going to be a much more painful workout than if I bounce my way through it, you know? Yeah. Yep. And when I've gone through periods where I skip the low intensity plyos or I skip the tempo running, I notice that I simply don't have the same ability to bounce off the ground, even if I'm doing depth jumps, you know, and depth jumps and drop jumps, the amount of volume you can get in is very limited. It's almost to me at this point, more of a a testing mechanism than a developmental mechanism, because 
Right. I can only do so much before my Achilles are going to be pissed off or my knee gets bugged or it's just, you know, a little too intense considering all the other training that I'm doing. Whereas the low yeah. intensity plyos or the, the tempo runs where the goal is almost to like when I'm coaching the kids and we're doing pogos, I'm like, you need to make it easy. You need to bounce yes. off the ground as quickly as Relax. you can, get high in the air, but make it easy. Don't work for it because then we're probably going to be utilizing more elastic tissue because elastic tissue doesn't last time I checked, doesn't have much of a, an energy requirement. You know, it's just, right. it's just stretch, just doing this. It's like rubber band. And you don't activate it with effort. Exactly. So yeah. using low intensity forms of training, you know, we've, I feel like it's, it's commonly been thought that that's purely just for work capacity or conditioning, yeah. but there's so many other benefits you can get. And, you know, this year I've put more of that training into my program. And then all of a sudden my 150 goes down by almost four tenths of a second. Yeah. I'm not saying that's the only thing that led up to it. There's a few changes I've made in my program, but that's one of the biggest changes I've made. And I feel it when I'm out at the track. It's just, I go through my drills, I go through my warm-up runs. Everything feels a little easier because I'm able to get off the ground without having to muscle my way through it. And, it, and you can train that through these low intensity forms of training with a lower risk and you can get great reward out of it. You don't have to drop off of a three meter box, smash your knees into the ground and do two of them and then and then you're done right. for the day you know so yeah so yeah and a few points like along with that so one when we're talking about this stuff you know for the listeners we don't necessarily mean conditioning right like when i was doing you know 16 second 100 meters by 10 for 10 reps and then i, I mean i was taking probably three minutes between those and it's an easy run like i was not it was not a hard workout at all. Yeah, you're not gassed. No. I was, I was, I was walking away from that. Like, oh, let's go jump up the stairs. You know, like yeah. I, I had energy <laughs> after that. Um, and then also having that, having that volume in place for a while, you know, after you have that taking more off days can be really good. Yeah. You know, so I've had people who, uh, so yeah, some track athletes who, you know, they come off of high school track season where they've been running a bunch because, you know, they were in relays and they were doing, yeah, 200, maybe even 400, you know, whatever, running a bunch. And then they train fast twice per week and do nothing else. And then, they'll, you know, short term in that month, they might actually do spectacularly, you know, yep. like, okay, well, your fly time is faster now than it was during track season. Mm -hmm. So after that period of higher volume, you can definitely benefit from like cutting it down and doing just intense stuff. Um, and then I think there was one more point I had in my head. Shoot. <laughs> um, I think, okay. I think it was on the topic of the, yeah, the, the low effort, the relaxing, yeah, making it easy. Yeah. Making it easy. Um, yeah. I mean, going back to sort of that, like cross country example, I think, I think it, it goes to show that the nature of e elasticity is, uh, somewhat involuntary. Yeah. You know, you're building up tissues and like, and probably even shaping tissues, right. Mm -hmm. In a way that, uh, you know, they're, they're being used without you putting effort in. Yeah. 
right? Like, and, and this is something I, I wish we had more research on because I would like to understand it more. Um, you know, is it the the fascial tension around the ankle, you know, and in the lower leg? Uh, is that a big piece of it? And this this is where it gets into my ankle mobility post from yesterday. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so like when people have that fascial tension, that tightness around the uh, around the ankle, um, and then you know if that is contributing to their bouncing off the ground, well, you know, you you don't have uh, neurons connected to your fascia that like make it contract hard. You know, right? It's that you know that that contribution is not coming from your effort. Mm -hmm. it's just like involuntary it's just you know it it resists deformation and so it just creates stiffness for you naturally mm -hmm. uh without without effort and so i you know i think that's a that's a big component of this and that's where you know that's one of the reasons that that volume helps is because you're yeah, you're you're developing that involuntary subconscious, just natural effortless bounce off the ground. Um, yeah, whereas, you know, people love to talk about training your nervous system to be fast and all that. And that has legitimacy, too. I'm not saying yeah. muscles don't matter, um, but it's not the whole picture. Right. So. So, yeah, I think we're I think we got some of the same thinking on this on this topic. Yeah. yeah. And I I haven't really heard anybody else frame it in that way. Like, I haven't really heard anybody talk about it like that, but as an athlete, as a coach, I've, I've just seen it happen where, you know, you, you do this for a while, all of a sudden, wow, easier to bounce off the ground and everything, everything then becomes easier. Like I went out and ran a hundred the other day after doing some flying sprints and it just, and same with the 150 that I ran where I set a personal best, they were like the easiest runs that I've ever had. Yeah. I didn't have to force it. And whereas when I did force it, I ran slower, you know, now you're causing discoordination in the system or you're, you're activating an agonist muscle too late in the movement. So now the limb can't reverse and go in the other direction. So you're kind of holding yourself back because you're fighting, you know, your hip flexors pulling one way, your glutes pulling the other way, and it slows the movement down. And so when we do these forms of training, not only can we improve the ability to be elastic, which helps your efficiency and helps you get through a race with less of an energy demand, I, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. But it can also probably help teach how to what it feels like to move explosively, but without grinding your way through it, because that's a very hard concept to get across to people is max intensity is not the same in a deadlift, how, how a max intensity deadlift feels versus a max intensity sprint that's gonna get you to your fastest times. It's a very different sensation within your body. So yes. we do wanna do very high intensity training. We do wanna push those boundaries when it's appropriate and safe to do so, but also have something in the program that teaches the athlete to feel light, to feel like they're moving with minimal effort. It doesn't mean that they're technically sloppy. The effort can be directed into managing their posture, making sure they're you know, doing the movement right, but it's not gritting your way to the outcome. You know, it's sort yeah. of flowing your way there. And I think if if more people can can grasp that, they'd probably they'd probably find some benefits. I think. Uh, yeah, and that's a that's another uh, thing that you can really teach yourself with testing. Mm -hmm. 
is and so you talked about like the 150 you know and there being a difference when you like tried really hard um even even a 40 can be that way oh yeah or or even a, a like i do flying 20s pretty often with you know that's like kind of my go-to distance with my athletes and uh particularly the ones outside of track i guess um who don't have as much of a you know top speed sprinting background and you know they're just not as like practiced on it yeah they'll like it's not everybody but definitely some people ask them to run 90 percent and like <laughs> smooth and they'll run a faster fly time than if you tell yeah. them to go 100 yep. percent. and and you know sometimes it happens in one workout but sometimes it's even consistent mm -hmm. over the course of time like if they try hard they run slower yep and, e and even yeah even in a flying 20 like that short distance you know you're talking about you know two to two and a half seconds like depending on how good the athlete is um even in that tiny time frame um that like that relaxation can make a difference and you yeah you would expect that relaxation is all about efficiency maybe mm -hmm. uh, and so that oh it's just gonna make me faster over a 200 well no it might actually make you faster over a flying 20. yep yeah like even even short distance you, you know your max velocity can be higher with what feels like less effort sometimes Mm -hmm. um so yeah it's all it's all very counterintuitive <laughs> but you yeah, can and yeah, if you start testing things you can find out sometimes like oh wow that's what actually makes me run fast exactly and you can uh you know when then then the trick becomes okay how do we bring that into competition because it's one thing yeah. to do it in practice when you're you know the, there's no fear of less of a fear of failure or uh you know less of a desire to win or whatever because you're just doing your thing at practice then when we get in competition can we stay composed and that's why you know mental confidence and the mental side of of being an athlete comes into play which is a little bit more than we have time to get into today here but right, right. just just want to make that point that you know once we develop those qualities in practice and we can prove that that produces a better time, then maybe athletes can be a little bit more willing to try to be relaxed when they run in a race or to to replicate that when the stress level's higher and when they're more willing or more likely to just, you know, blast out and be all over the place because they're all revved up by competition. The trick then becomes how do we transfer that there, you know, and that that's it's a tough question to answer, but something yeah. that comes to mind, you know. Um, I know for, we're running sure, up on... Yeah running up on the time here. Um, one question I had is, how have you liked using the 1080 in in your training? Yeah. Um, it's pretty expensive. It, it's expensive, <laughs> it, so it's good. Um, I would say I am not a huge believer in resisted sprints. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely think they can have the, you know, some, some benefits for, I mean, one teaching people stuff, like you, you just get a feeling of, you know, what it's like to push yourself forward and right. as, as simple as pushing is like, it's not always built into people. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, some people like to just move their feet fast yeah. and, and also some people can be fast just moving their feet fast. That's another right. <laughs> Yeah. another topic where you know we don't we don't want to force people into a a mold necessarily but um yeah like you can you can get people to feel things you can uh 
you know, by keeping them moving a little bit slower than a regular sprint, you can get them uh, more feel for like, you know, closed shin angles and striking back at the ground. And you can get like more reps practicing that feel. And so, you know, it can be helpful in that type of thing. Um, I think it can be good for physical development even. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, you could use it as a strength stimulus, um, in, in the case of somebody where you don't want to do disruptive strength, you know, yeah. you can actually get some more strength out of that. Um, or it could be a, uh, you know, yeah, just like that, uh, what the horizontal to vertical ratio, right. yeah. <laughs> maybe by getting more work while you're, where you are generating a large horizontal force or, you know, larger than a regular sprint. Like th- there is some level of adaptation in the body there. Um, but generally I view it as like, well, I want to sprint fast. I don't want to yeah. sprint slow. You don't want to slow yourself down. Yeah. Like I want to train fast. So then, you know, this, then I, I, it's like a small piece of the puzzle here. Um, but I mean, you are though, you, you're getting exposure to more of like your drive phase, basically, or more of your start, depending on how heavy you do the resistance. Um, so, so all that being said, you know, resistance sprinting, I'm not like that high on it, but it is a tool, but the 1080 with its measurement capabilities mm-hmm. does give us, you know, more insight there. And, and that's where I like it more. Like if we didn't have a 1080, I would do very little like sled pulling or pushing. Yeah. I've done almost none in the last, this whole year. I did it for like a couple of weeks maybe. And just yeah. intuitively, I felt like, I don't know if this is helping me right now. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see the transfer to my times. I don't, it makes me more tired when I use them. But <laughs> other than yeah. that, I don't know what I'm getting out of it. But with, with the 1080, like you said, you got all the data. So that can give you some great insights, I'd imagine. Yeah. So, you know, things, things that you can get from there, like you can see uh, people will have nice, clean, smooth peaks mm-hmm. on their power curve. Um, or they might have really ugly, jagged, like just like noisy things. Yeah. And, and I think that clues you in a little bit to some of their abilities. Now there's definitely other ways that you can figure those types of things out. But so, yeah, you know, the, the career track athlete uh, with great elastic ability and uh, maybe, maybe who's not like been poisoned by too much squatting, they tend to have the smooth, nice curves. Mm-hmm. Um, even, even like with heavier resistance, they'll, they'll tend to have that. Whereas, you know, your, your football or your rugby guy might have like the ugly stuff. And even if they are fast on the resistance sprint, like the, the curve might look more ugly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's cluing you into their abilities a little bit. Um, you'll get the, the, uh, the up and down pattern where you got one leg that's doing way higher than the other one on, on the power curve or on the force curve. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It measures, you know, measures force, force speed and power. Uh, you can get those different graphs. And, and so that can clue you into, you know, differences in the legs a little bit, um, which, which, which is good. And for the record, like an asymmetry there is not necessarily a problem. Like that's pretty normal. Um, I would say the time where it really came into play was I had a post ACL guy. Mm. So he had been through rehab for six, six plus months. He had returned to, he was a running back. So he had returned to football 
returned to strength training. Like he was basically doing everything again. Um, and he comes to see me and on the 1080 with like a, a light resistance, it was three kilograms. His, uh, his ACL leg more or less disappeared from the, uh, the, the power graph as he got up to speed. So mm. in, the, in the beginning, it was like a little bit up and down. And then as he got up to higher speeds, that one leg, basically, instead of having a, a spike, he just, it just turned into noise. Oh. Uh -huh. Yeah. And so it, it, he had been through, you know, the whole rehab process. And I was like, okay, but there's still something here missing. Mm -hmm. And so I had him start hopping on that leg, uh, sort of like not high intensity, but like medium intensity uh, a few times per week. And two weeks later, he had like a pretty normal looking graph. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. Like that ACL, the ACL leg started to have that spike show up in there. Um, Do you think that so was just you know, inhibition it, from the brain or something like that? It's it's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, may, maybe some inhibition, but then also you know, maybe there's some element to the yeah, like that reactive strength or that elastic mm -hmm. component that you know he wasn't getting from yeah. foot just football and lifting. So you had to kind and of bridge so, the gap between. Yeah, like he needed some more bouncing off the ground on that leg to really you know yeah. It's hard to say exactly what the adaptation would have been there. Yeah. Um, especially since it happened pretty fast. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, you're inclined to think that it was more of a, yeah, like a brain or nervous system type thing um, rather than like dramatic structural changes in two weeks, you know? Right. Um, but I mean, maybe, maybe it's probably more holistic, but, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so that was the case where the, like the 1080 really came in handy. Um, I also like, it, it does give you a peek into the, like that strength versus speed concept. Um, so, you know, we have, we do like kind of our standard is 10 kilo testing is like sort of the heavier one. Um, we will mess around with 15 or even 30, but I, I view that as more of like a strength training stimulus yeah. than, um, than, than testing. And so that, that 10 kilo resistance is like, that's fairly heavy for a, a good athlete, but like, they're still moving pretty fast. But so you can see sometimes their strength will be very connected with that. Mm. like a 20 meter time with 10 kilos resistance they can get stronger and like get way better at that that resistance sprint they might not get faster at their regular sprint at the same time interesting so that 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 gives you that insight into you know what are strength and speed doing here mm -hmm. um and the and you know and the 10 kilo test is a, a relatively you know, it's not super taxing. Like you can hit a few reps of that, like pretty much any day you wanted to, right. uh, unless someone's just like completely thrashed. It's not like a high risk or like super, uh, super demanding on the body. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a way that you can say like, oh, look, you know, this, this resistance sprint got faster. That's a really good sign for the future. But if you, you know, if your regular sprints aren't faster, maybe we need to, you know, shift a little bit, or maybe you just need to rest some more um you know to get get the more sensitive uh ability to to kick up here um but yeah so it can it can be helpful in that but yeah if, if we weren't testing and getting that that data then um you know if it was just a box with a string in it i <laughs> would probably use it very very little <laughs> yeah that's pretty funny no but it, it makes total sense well i think this has been really um good practical information for people, you know, and thing concepts that 
are are down to earth that people can actually think about and apply in their training. So really mm -hmm. suggest anybody who is into this stuff should follow you. So where's the best place for them to follow you on Instagram, YouTube and all that? Yeah, so Instagram got jump.science or the speed one is speed.science0. Uh, those are the two accounts. Yeah, I, at some point, just wanted like an outlet for speed content specifically, because yeah. uh, I, you know, I felt like doing a, you know, doing a five-part series on low heel recovery on jump science just wasn't really, <laughs> you know, just not really hitting the the uh, what my audience is looking for there. So yeah. just wanted a separate outlet. Um, and then yeah, just jump science. I think I am on YouTube, something like that. If yeah, you, if you just jump YouTube, science. Yeah. It'll, it'll pop up. So, um, yeah, YouTube, some of the same stuff I post there, but sometimes you get like some longer, longer videos with like more explanation and stuff on YouTube. So well, I'll make um, sure to then, tag it all in the, in the video so people can click over and subscribe yeah, and all that. And I, I do have a website with articles as well, which I know mm -hmm. a lot of people don't like to read a, you know, a 2000 word <laughs> article or whatever, but, uh, if you just type jump.science into a web, web browser, uh, that's my website as well. So there's it's a good some, domain. Yeah, yeah it's a fun option. I, whenever I made that website, I was like, "Oh, this is cool." Yeah. yeah. No, there's no yeah. .com on it. Just jumped on science. <laughs> Legit. Any other topics you want to cover before we shut down here? Uh, nothing comes to mind immediately. I think we covered a lot of good stuff. So yeah. Sweet. Well, if anything comes up, we can always bring you on for another one and uh, yeah. continue Be the down. conversation there. But I really appreciate your time, man. I know you're busy with training and everything but uh i think it's good info for people and you know you really help uh keep me grounded and i think help other people keep grounded and not getting too over the top with complex training or you know going down too many rabbit holes it's like let's let's focus on these big rocks of training let's look at it with critical thinking use a mix of intuition as well as you know being grounded in science and uh, I think that's that's good stuff, and we need more of that out there. So I appreciate you and the content you put out there and, and your time today. Yeah, thanks for those kind words, man. That means a lot. Yeah, yeah this is definitely. a fun talk. Awesome.